Have you joined Spyscape Plus yet? Spyscape Plus membership gives you exclusive access to Q&As with the spies and experts featured on the show and to supporter-only content such as The Razumov Files, our six-part drama series which reimagines Joseph Conrad's classic spy thriller under Western eyes for the present day. Once you've signed up, you can listen to all this and more via Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or whatever your podcast platform of choice is. Go to spyscape.com slash spyscape plus for details. Content warning. This episode contains references to sexual violence. Incoming transmission. Welcome. Welcome. This is True Spies, the podcast that takes you deep inside the greatest secret missions of all time. Week by week, you'll hear the true stories behind the operations that have shaped the world we live in. True Spies. You'll meet the people who live life undercover. What do they know? What are their skills? And what would you do in their position? This is True Spies. Once you are on the field, you have a mission. If the people who are in charge, those who sent you, do not trust you, then you better leave. You cannot carry on your mission. I'm Sofia DiMartino, and this is True Spies from Spyscape Studios. Exodus, part two. Passports and prison cells. Sudan, 1979. Mossad agent Danny Lemoore has been in the country undercover for two months. His mission? To find and rescue Ethiopian Jews fleeing from persecution and a bloody civil war has so far come to nothing. And now, for the first time since his arrival, he's managed to connect with headquarters, who tell Danny precisely what he doesn't want to hear. Dad wants to see you urgently. Dad, meaning my boss, wants to see me urgently. That means I have to leave. With little progress to report, Danny knows that returning to Israel would likely see headquarters abandon the mission, leaving the Ethiopian Jews to an uncertain fate. But having found the man who sparked Mossad's search two months ago, Feridea Klum, Danny can't bring himself to abandon the one Ethiopian Jew he has found. So Danny uses some deception on his own team. I said, look, I cannot go now. You tell dad that I am very busy. I cannot leave now. I am in the middle of things that are happening. Actually, nothing happened. But headquarters are adamant. You've got no choice, is the reply. Danny knew what that meant. It was code for a direct order from the top. Ignoring it would mean an automatic dishonorable discharge. Danny says he will come back, knowing that he won't. After that conversation, I told Faraday that I need to go uh, to Europe to discuss some matters, and I'll be absent for a week. And what if you don't come back? Faraday asks. I said, I'll come back. He says, but if you don't come back, I will come back. (laughs) I'll come back. I'm not going to abandon you. Jews don't leave Jews. 
Danny adds. All my life, since the moment I came to Israel as a young man, 16 years old, I always felt that whatever I do, first of all, I'm, I'm willing to pay the price. Reluctantly, Danny leaves Sudan, but not for Israel. Instead, he stops in Paris, offering headquarters a compromise. On an encrypted line, Danny speaks to the head of the Mossad himself, Yitzhak Hoffi. You have no results, Hoffi says. Come back now. Give me one more month, Danny pleads. The line goes quiet. Then, you have one week. But Danny is not done. Can we say two weeks? Fine. I don't want you to stay a day longer unless you find Jews. And so I went back. Back in Sudan, Danny goes to a prearranged spot outside one of the camps to rendezvous with Faraday. In the distance, Danny spots him with two men. And those two guys, they looked like, wow, they, they hadn't eaten for weeks. Really looked bad. Upon meeting them, Danny can hardly believe it. They were two Jews that he found. And more than that, they knew others in the camp. Danny had two weeks to find Jews or the mission was over. Now, on his first night, there they were. The mission was back on. Danny and Faraday load the Jews into their Land Rover Defender and, under the cover of darkness, transport them 400 kilometers to a hostel in Khartoum. They tell them to stay in their room and not make a sound. Faraday would come and provide for them each day. At around the same time, back in Faraday's village in Ethiopia, a stranger appears at his mother's hut. Upon greeting her, the stranger says he has news from Sudan. He was an Ethiopian smuggler that spoke uh, Arabic perfectly, so he could, uh, you know, he could go anywhere. He pulls out a photograph of Faraday, the son she had not heard from in five months. Have you seen him? She asks. Yes, the stranger replies. He is safe in Sudan and in contact with Israel. Faraday's mother learns that the smuggler has come to bring her other sons to Sudan on Faraday's orders. They thought that before we call everyone to come, he wanted to test to see how his younger brothers will do it walking this huge distance. Immediately, Faraday's younger brothers agree to make the journey, that day. Disguised in traditional Muslim clothes, the smuggler takes the boys across the border, evading both rebel and government soldiers for over a week. The group eventually arrives in Gadaref. Three days later, word gets to Faraday in Khartoum, 400 kilometers away. That night, the three brothers are reunited. But for Danny, there was still a problem. While he knew it was now possible to get Ethiopian Jews into Sudan, he had no way of getting them out. But then... The solution for this method of evacuation, as many other things that happen in this operation, came because life is life. Danny often took a room at one of the only Western-style hotels in Khartoum, 
both to try and meet potentially useful contacts and also to catch some respite. One day, outside the hotel, he notices a motorbike. Now, I was always a bike man. But in Sudan, I noticed that there were no bikes. No bikes at all. Not big, not small, not medium, nothing. Danny stares enviously at the motorbike. With my mouth open, probably. And here comes the owner. In a thick French accent, the man asks if he likes it. I say, yes, I like it very much. And then I told them in French, how? How did you bring it? So he says, I'm working for the UNHCR. The United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees. This man, a Belgian, was the organization's number two in Sudan. He was in charge of relocation of refugees. His job was to obtain from countries around the world, but essentially Western Europe, entry visas, as many as possible. Danny knew this was a golden opportunity. And uh, slowly but surely we became friendly. After a few days, Danny starts to visit the Belgian in his office. Through his cover as an anthropologist, Danny asks how the refugee relocation scheme works. He even considers telling the Belgian outright what he was really doing in Sudan. But then he learns his boss was from Egypt, a Muslim country that Israel had an improving but still testy relationship with. I couldn't know if this guy would be hostile or friendly or so, you know, you have to be careful. You have to be prudent. So Danny devises another plan. I will learn how he does it and I will try to do it clandestinely. The Belgian would contact embassies asking how many refugees they would take. Once a number was agreed on, he would provide them a list of names and purchase airline tickets. In turn, the embassies would issue a request for passports and exit visas for these names from the Sudanese Interior Ministry. The Belgian even took Danny to the ministry itself three times to see how the final documents were stamped and collected. But more importantly, who stamped them? Well, my idea was that he sees my face with the Belgian. He knows that the Belgian guy is a senior thing with the UNHCR. So if I am with him, I probably am working with him. But it was hugely risky. Sudan was officially an enemy of Israel, bent on the destruction of the Zionist state. Danny knew that if the Sudanese caught him in literal Zionist activity, trafficking Jews, he would likely be killed. But by this point, he was all in. And so I did what I needed to do, and uh, without any sort of uh, second thoughts. He rings headquarters, asking his boss to contact all embassies the Mossad had good relations with in Khartoum. They should accept all refugee relocation requests. That is, all requests from a man named Antoine. The rest, I'll take care of, Danny says. A few days later, Danny's boss contacts him. Several embassies, including the Swiss, the French, the Germans and the Greeks, are on board. Or at least their intelligence agencies are. In turn, they would instruct their diplomats to do as asked. The latter not knowing they would be issuing false passport requests to Sudanese officials. 
Faraday gives Danny the names of 16 Ethiopian Jews he has found in the camps. Stating his name as Antoine, Danny goes to each embassy and collects the passport requests. Then he heads to the Sudanese Interior Ministry itself. And he was like a pilot, you know, see how they react. There he meets the same official he had encountered several times with the Belgian. I was lucky because this guy did not engage in any conversations and not because he didn't know English, he knew English. He was just this type of, you know, arrogant, you don't talk to these uh, infidels. And uh, so it was my luck. I didn't need to do any small talk with him. So I said good morning in Arabic and I put my list on his table. He looked at me for just a fraction of a second. Then he counted the names and he went to the couple and they brought me 25 passports. That was it. Once stamped, Danny took the passports to show Faraday. He could hardly believe it. We have a system, Danny shouted. That month, May 1979, they took the first 16 Ethiopian Jews to Khartoum Airport. None of them had been on an aeroplane before, but with Danny and Faraday's instructions, they approached the desk, checked in and slipped out of view. After landing in Greece, they took a connecting flight to Israel. Faraday's brothers were among them. Two months later, another 16 Ethiopian Jews arrived in the Promised Land. Most broke down in tears upon landing. Others kissed the ground, while one even ate the soil under his feet in fulfillment of a lifelong dream. The process was complete and was perfect. Now knowing they could get Jews out, Faraday made a bold decision. He sent his emissary to his family and it took some time and he didn't get any answer. We were worried that maybe the messenger was intercepted, maybe something happened. And he says, look, I think I'm going to walk into Ethiopia to the closest Jewish village. Danny was under orders. At no point was he to cross the border out of Sudan. But headquarters didn't need to know. And I said, OK, if you go, I'm going also. But both of them knew a white man would attract too much attention if seen. So Danny came up with an idea. Paint me. I'll dress local. And we walk by night. At night, nobody can see that this is fake. Faraday covered Danny with charcoal and they set off. He thought I would slow him down, you know, because they walk very quickly. But I uh, was a former paratrooper, so I can walk quickly and long walks too. It was like a challenge. After three nights, they arrived in a Jewish village far in the northwest of Ethiopia. Faraday tells the village elders of the route to Israel, imploring them to bring their people across the border. And but suddenly, Faraday sees that they're looking at me. So he wets his finger and it does cross my uh, cheek and up the white appears. And he tells them, okay, this is a white brother. The villagers had never even heard of white Jews, let alone seen one. So um, this was the beginning of the coming of people from another direction. With Jews now coming into Sudan from several different areas of Ethiopia, the system needed improving. Danny leased two compounds on Khartoum's outskirts 
housing up to 70 people in each. But while the route out of Sudan via the airport was working, it could only take so many. For every 20 persons, 30 persons, we get 30 passports. But actually, we have 50 or 60 or 70 people or more. So Faraday offered a solution. He was a creative guy. Why don't we try family passports, Faraday says. That way, several Jews could get out on just one. It was a risk to Danny, but an acceptable one. The first one we took two adults and three children. It was not the parents with the children. We created a family, photo and everything, names, so on. Danny goes with the family to the check-in desk and presents the document. Immediately, the official looks bemused. What is this? He asks Danny. So I told him, look, you know, we are the United Nations. We are very sensitive to the environment. And you know that in order to manufacture paper, you need to cut trees. So it's a lot of paper, so it's a lot of trees. We are trying to spare the trees. So we are using now a family passport. Still looking a little bemused, the official pauses. I don't know what would have happened. He had called his uh, superior probably there would be a problem, but he didn't. The official stamps the passport and the family heads through security. Danny tells the Belgian from the UNHCR the same story. I told him, look, the question of the environment, the question <laughs> is real. I mean, you know, if we can spare some trees, it's good for the planet. And on the other hand, maybe take even more people and so on. Even he buys it. He went to the authorities and he said this and that, but actually it became official. Faraday had just multiplied the number of Jews they could rescue by at least several times. The more they used the family passport, the bolder Danny became. The most chutzpedic one was one passport with 15 persons. The parents and 13 children now. The family photo was small, so you actually could not see anything. It was like little dots on the photograph. And it passed. The passport was so bold that to this day, the Mossad have it displayed in their private museum. A memento to the often crazy lengths Danny went to to complete his mission. Every day in America, 60 million packages are delivered but we don't always know what's inside. He bent down to pick the package up. That's when the device detonated. Danger is everywhere, and no one is safe in Austin, Texas, as law enforcement hunts a serial bomber for 19 days. From Sony Music Entertainment, Campside Media, and Pegalo Pictures, this is Witnessed, 19 days. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts to binge all episodes or listen weekly wherever you get your podcasts. By this time, Danny felt it was only right that Faraday was made an official Mossad agent with a salary. He's doing the same job as me, maybe even riskier. Headquarters agrees, on one condition. Faraday must come to Israel to complete basic training. Danny argued it wasn't necessary. I told him, come on, what course? You're not serious. He can give you a course. Because of the conditions of their lives, many things that he did as, as a young Jewish leader were things that were um, clandestine in some way. But headquarters insisted. 
And with that, Faraday Aklam went to Israel, fulfilling a boyhood dream. Overcome with excitement and with money now in his account, Faraday does something he's never done before. First thing he did, he bought a car. But there was a problem. He never learned how to drive before leaving Sudan. Faraday was now Mossad, however, and given a driving license along with his first paycheck. So he went to the car dealer, paid for the car, brand new car, and about, I don't know, five kilometers later, he went into a tree. Total loss. <laughs> Despite the incident, headquarters soon understood Danny's point. There was no need to train Faraday. He was capable enough. Within a week, he was back in Sudan. He was totally superfluous, but he had stepped on Israeli soil and that gave him a super motivation and he came back full of energy. And he wasn't the only one. Other Ethiopian Jews were now coming to Sudan also. Lots of them. But with the evacuation program ramping up, there's a problem. One day, Danny and Faraday go, as usual, to the ministry to collect passports. But this time, the trip was anything but usual. I went in, as I always did, go up to the first floor, knock at the door, open the door, nobody there. I go to the neighboring office and I said, where is this one? He says, ah, I went out. I don't know when he comes back. So, okay, so there is nothing for me to do. I go back to the car and as I exit the building, in front of my eyes, I see Faraday being dragged by the collar of his shirt by a uh, civilian policeman. Throwing Faraday into the back of his unmarked car, the plain-clothed policeman drives off. Danny runs to his jeep in pursuit. And immediately I saw that he was going to the police headquarters. He reached the police headquarters, the guy raises the barrier, and before he has time to lower it, up I go inside the courtyard. Hauled into a windowless room, Faraday's worst fear has come true. The Sudanese have caught him. But then the door opened. In walked not a policeman, but Danny. He had pushed past the guard straight into the building. If I let him out of my sight, anything can happen. Anything. Faraday tells Danny he tried to bribe the policeman en route to the station, which backfired. And the guy, uh, ah, so you're attempting to bribe a Sudanese police officer. He accused him of bribing. Shortly after, however, another man walks into the room. This officer was huge. The officer shouts at Faraday in Arabic. A refugee without a passport in Sudan, trying to bribe a policeman. So Faraday tells him, I'm sorry, I don't speak Arabic. Instantly, the officer punches Faraday. I thought he was going to cut his head off. Danny knows he must do something. Instinctively, I went to the officer and told him, why are you waiting him? What has he done to you? The officer slams Danny against the wall. You don't speak, he says. You go. I know I can go, but I don't want to go. I'm going only if he's coming with me. The officer replies, 
Ah, so you want to remain? You want to stay? Take them to the cell. Both. And with that, Danny and Faraday were in prison. It was almost dark. No uh, windows, nothing. It's a question of uh, survival because uh, as soon as I saw who was in the cell, it was not like refugees or something. It was criminals, blue-collar criminals. And I thought, well, they're going to get fresh meat. Ethiopian guy, white guy, fresh meat. Danny's Mossad training kicks in. My first thought was to put my hour backside against the wall. You don't want to be in the center of that place. A stench pervades the cell. To take his mind off it, Danny goes to light a cigarette. As soon as I took out the pack of cigarettes from my pocket, it was taken over by someone. Calm, Danny spots an opportunity. And I saw a guy, uh, you could see that he was in charge. Danny sees he has his cigarettes. Then he came, so I said, can I have one cigarette from my pack? He gave me. And then I said, you want to have a constant supply of cigarettes and bread and drinking water? Danny hands him 10 Sudanese pounds, a large sum, and tells him to call the guard and ask for it. Then Danny offers him a deal. He'll keep giving him money for cigarettes, bread, whatever he wanted. There's just one thing he wants in return. Protection. I don't want to worry at night that something will happen to my brother or to myself. The prisoner agrees, telling his henchman to look out for the white man and his Ethiopian friend. To Danny, the deal was simply the sort of thing he had learned to value over years of being a true spy. You know, you put as many assets on your side as you can. With the immediate danger of the cell negotiated, Danny turns his attention to getting Faraday out of it altogether. But it seems almost impossible. I was not very optimistic about the result of this. And Faraday was sure that it was the end. Just leave me, Faraday says. You can still get out. I said, what? You're hurting, you're vexing me. What do you mean, leave? If it was a different uh, situation, would you leave me alone in, uh, in this cell? Several days go by. Each night they take it in turns to sleep. They witness rapes, attacks, death. But Danny's deal with the cell's alpha male is holding. They are left untouched. Eventually, they are let out into the prison courtyard. Surveilling the perimeter, Danny spots the policeman who arrested Faraday. But he's not alone. He's talking to someone. Someone Danny knows. I recognized the driver of the head of the UNHCR office. He knew that I was a friend of the deputy, of the Belgian guy. I've seen him, you know, several times. The driver rushes over to Danny, asking what he's doing inside. I told him, look, you know, it's a misunderstanding. And he works for me as an interpreter. And uh, they arrested him. The driver says he'll see what he can do. But after several days, there's bad news. The Sudanese will not release Faraday. He is Ethiopian. And worse than that, not a Muslim. He will stay here for the rest of his life. 
Even the head of the UNHCR in Sudan himself went to the prison, but still no luck. Not one to give up, however, Danny speaks to the driver again. Who is this guy you're talking to? This is the policeman that arrested Verdi. Here's my cousin, the driver says. Aha, your cousin, good. Danny tells him to get all charges against Faraday dropped, whatever the price. Two days later, Danny is pulled out of the cell and marched in to see the commanding officer. The bribery charge against Faraday has been withdrawn, but... Yeah, I have to pay a fine of such and such sum, and you have to pay for the food and the water for these days that we spend there, and then you will be freed Danny paid the sum, 300 Sudanese pounds to the officer and the same amount again to the policeman who accused Faraday of trying to bribe him. The irony of the exercise wasn't lost on anyone. Now, this is the best joke that you can ever hear. Try to bribe a Sudanese officer. Faraday was brought out of the cell and after 11 days, both he and Danny were released. As a Mossad agent, Danny knew it was mandatory to report any sort of imprisonment in an enemy country. He also knew that once headquarters found out, they would terminate the mission. So, he never reported it. I only told my head of division long years after both of us were not already in the service. And he agreed with me that had I told him at the time that I was arrested and I even I told him we came out and nothing happened and we are not being followed or we are not under surveillance or whatever, he would have said, doesn't matter, out. You and Faraday. So he agreed that in retrospective, the fact that I didn't say was, <laughs> probably he would have done the same. Life in the field. Danny was prepared to do whatever it took to get the job done, including ignoring agency rules. And I always said, uh, for people that ask me, you know, how can you do that? They will fire you, they will do this. I said, okay, so they fire me. What can, I mean, I have to do it. That's it. Getting straight back to work and with the numbers of Ethiopian Jews swelling, Faraday brought in help. Forming what became known as the committee, Faraday recruited trusted male Jews to be organizers in the camps. Faraday would tell them how many were to be evacuated and they would arrange everything, leading the groups to Danny to traffic to the airport. Over the first six months of 1980, some 600 Ethiopian Jews were smuggled out of Sudan on refugee family passports, landing in European countries before being taken to Israel. While only a fraction of the total number of Beta Israel, Danny and Faraday's improvised evacuation system was working well. That is, until August 1980. Hearing that there might also be Jews in Port Sudan, some 900 kilometers away, Danny and Faraday went to look. Finding nothing, they returned to Khartoum and visited one of the two compounds Danny had rented to house the Jews. We arrive, knock the knock, nothing happens. Danny knocks again. Nothing happened. Both he and Faraday knew something was wrong. Signaling for them to retreat, Danny walks back to the car. 
and then up the door opens and two guys each one with a pistol jump out and one pushes me against the wall and he puts the gun like this in front of my nose and starts shouting in Arabic keeping his cool Danny grabs the end of the pistol and I slowly pushed it outside my face we're from the United Nations Danny says before turning his back to the men and getting in the car if he fires he fires <laughs> what can I do with Faraday hiding unseen in the passenger footwell Danny floors it knowing the entire mission may now be compromised he heads to the second compound and without knocking at the door I just went up the three meters wall from there Danny sees a committee member inside the gate immediately he tells Danny that the secret police have found the first compound and more than that they have Faraday's picture Danny knew it was over Faraday was burned his photo would now likely be at every border crossing and checkpoint in the country so I want him out but how now it's the middle of the night I put Faraday in a place to wait for me it was up in a tree his decision Danny tries to think he had good relations with several of the airlines at Khartoum Airport and one person in particular a ticket agent at Swiss Air at the time they used to write the tickets having bought so many tickets personally from the agent Danny had gotten to know her for her I was a very good client once I took her home from the office so I knew where she lived Danny drives to her house and knocks on the door her father opens it asking Danny what do you want I'd like to speak to your daughter what now in the middle of the night then I started to explain look I have a guy who is very sick he has tuberculosis and I have already vaccinated him and so on and so on but I need to get him out tomorrow I found him a place in Switzerland where he can be taken care of hearing the clamor downstairs the ticket agent appears at the door unsure she pauses saying nothing so the father says oh, no it's important okay we come five minutes later I have her two brothers and the father all of them in the car and we go to the office she opens you know tuck 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 makes the ticket taking the ticket Danny then mentions the VIP lane at the airport those VIPs you know ministers or whatever they don't go through customs and through police control nothing they come with a car up to the stairs and they go up to the plane and that's it well I want the same thing for him because I don't want him to go through the airport coughing and contaminating the whole thing absolutely not the agent says but again her father intervenes agreeing to do it Danny hands the agent 50 Sudanese pounds to give to the VIP lane guard and drives back to Faraday's hiding place from there they drive to the airport the guard opens the gate and they approach the plane and uh, I told further now you're going to be coughing all the time until you're out of Sudanese airspace <coughs> standing at the top of the passenger step Danny and Faraday embrace <coughs> the stewardesses can't believe their eyes someone hugging a man with tuberculosis we kissed three times like we do in Ethiopia <laughs> after 18 months together Faraday and Danny had rescued over 600 Ethiopian Jews 
survived Sudanese prison and become brothers. Eventually, both also lost their marriages to the mission. After saying their goodbyes, Faraday flew off to the promised land, where he lived for the rest of his life, becoming a champion for the Beta Israel cause. And that was the end of the story of Faraday. But despite all he had been through, and now having lost his partner, Danny was determined to continue. The challenges were simply part of the job to him. This type of um, intelligence agencies, one thing I can tell you, real life is totally different. It can be very frustrating. You're not drinking martini with olive and taking out your gun and shooting someone. Never happens. If you have to eliminate someone who is endangering something, okay. But most of the time you're doing things, using your mind, thinking and taking risks. But you prepare to those risks. But still, Danny couldn't continue alone. Knowing he couldn't replace Faraday, he recruited a team of people to fill the role. One of them was Tekele Makonan, also an Ethiopian Jew. We hear that Jews from Tigray region arrived to Sudan and come to Jerusalem. That rumor is spreading in the village like a fire. The information gets all over Ethiopia. And we said that is our chance. Aged just 16, Tekele and two of his school friends had decided to walk across the border. We know it's a very, very dangerous journey because of the Derg government. Almost half of our journey is controlled by the Derg militaries. And the half of the journey is a desert, very hot desert through Sudan. And we thought that uh, it took two weeks. In fact, it took more than four. We are talking about 600 kilometers. It's very, very exhausting, physically, also it's mentally. Eventually, however, Tekele and his friends arrived in one of the refugee camps. We don't have anything. We don't have anything to eat. No vegetables, no meat, nothing, nothing, nothing. And it is a really, really horrible refuge camp. And we start to be sick. A lot of us is very sick in dysentery and malaria. Growing desperate, they decided to move on to another camp. We know that the Tigray Jews were in Sudan, but we don't know where. Eventually, Tekele arrived at Gadaref camp. There he found other Jews, who took him to meet with the Mossad agent. Danny comes with his jeep. We're being shocked. It's a miracle. Danny with his jeep in the middle of the desert, like an angel. Danny makes Tekele one of the junior committee men, organizing Jews in the camps while arranging their escapes out of them. And he said, I, I will come back next week. You have to bring to this point any Jews. That's the order that we get. And we start at that point working with Danny. The word is out. Scores of Ethiopian Jews flock to Sudan every day with the hope of being spirited to Israel by Danny and the committee. But the mission is becoming a victim of its own success. So many people began to arrive from Ethiopia that we could not cope. 
with that number on this trail to Khartoum. Danny knew he needed another, larger evacuation route. He had thought of using the sea before, but the logistics were difficult. From the main refugee camp, Gadarev, to Khartoum was 400 kilometers. From Gadarev to the coast, however, was 900 kilometers. That's a huge distance and you cannot do it in one night. And there are also roadblocks. And roadblocks were often the biggest issue. When the lorry stopped, we are jumping out from the lorry and speak to the policeman. They beat us, always they beat us. They beat me a lot in Dorothy Magic. With no other options, however, Danny concluded that the sea may be the only way. This is what prompted my reconnaissance trip along the coast. Having now recruited two new Mossad agents to the mission, Danny set off for the coast. We started going northwards from Port Sudan along the coast on a dirt track. It was a very hot day. We didn't have any air conditioning in the car. It was really, really, really very hot. On the horizon, Danny spots something. <laughs> it seemed like a mirage. Getting closer, he makes out several white bungalows with red-tiled roofs, all built in a Mediterranean style. Pulling up, Danny spots a Bedouin guarding the area. He took me for a tour and he showed me everything. The rooms, the ensuite showers, the toilet and the diving gear. It was an abandoned diving resort. And he told me that if I was thinking of renting the place, the keys were with the director general of the Ministry of Tourism in Khartoum. Danny goes straight to meet with the director general, one Colonel Majoub. He didn't know how much to ask. So he's telling me, okay, how much do you want to pay per year? I said, it's your property. You have to tell me, and then I will tell you. Half a million dollars, the colonel says, per year. Okay, so that's a sum. I have to get him down. I said, 200. No way, the colonel replies. 300. I look at the waiting room and I say, but sir, I don't see anybody else waiting, queuing for the leasing of this place. The colonel pauses. Fine. $250,000 a year. Danny agrees. And I even had him sign a paper uh, with his name and his title because I, I wanted back home the people to believe me. <laughs> this is true. This is not something that, you know, I dreamed. Danny now has the perfect cover to bring more agents into Sudan and potentially get more Jews out. Next time on True Spies, one of the most daring cover operations in the history of espionage begins. We, of course, did also some uh, promoting uh, travel agencies in Europe that specialized in diving in exotic places and so on. And when we opened officially, we started having clients. We, of course, were thrilled. You know, it was really something totally um, strange for us. But then disaster strikes. Except for one boat, the beach was empty. And that boat was stuck in the sun. It was the last boat, so it was full of people that were trying to push it back, and it didn't move. And one of the soldiers in front of me 
he started running towards the boat with his Kalachnikov ready to shoot. So before I could do anything, he shot. I'm Sofia Di Martino. Join us next week for the third instalment of True Spies Exodus. Disclaimer. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the subject. These stories are told from their perspective and their authenticity should be assessed on a case-by-case basis.